Liberalism builds the stage on which fascism performs. That's the lesson of Budapest. <laughs> I would go further if I that's could. The less, that's, that's the lesson, sure, yeah. <laughs> Yo, another one bites the dust. <laughs> the Brits, Soviets, and now America, all in the graveyard of empires together. Also kind of a misnomer because the Mongols seem to uh, roll through it. No problem. Or hoof through it. Maybe that was the problem is that you can't use uh, wheels in the mountains up there. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> talking about the region of uh, Afghanistan. What is this cryptic? Uh... Yo, Vic, are you not familiar with the sobriquet, the graveyard of empires? Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember now because of the whole Soviet thing. And like, yeah, I guess before. Oh, did the did the did the Mongols get stopped there, too? No, no. the Brits. The Mongols the Brits, didn't. So. That's the point is because everyone used wheels Oh, Except right, the right, Mongols. Right. And, and I guess the Persians in. probably didn't have too much trouble there either. They but. used legs. Apocryphally, yeah. Alexander the Great also tried to attack the region and failed. So, oh, uh, Yeah, there's a little part in uh, in Rambo 3 where they're sort of standing on the mountain. He's got like his Sherpa guide and they look over and and he says, this is Afghanistan. She's the, Anyone who tries to conquer her always eventually fails. And then Stallone looks, he says, you know what I mean? And Stallone looks over and goes, doesn't take any shit from anybody. We are the Pill Pod. We are all uh, PhDs or almost PhDs. You guys should just finish, so then I don't have to add that caveat all the time. Well, maybe a year or two. We'll see. Anyway, various disciplines. We discuss theory and philosophy, sometimes applying it to current events as we are today because we felt pressured into it. Everyone's got to take... Who pressured us into it? I'm not pointing fingers. <laughs> 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 Only on the camera. Um, however, we don't always agree. We're not what you would call a united front, as no. is expected when you come from different disciplines and interests. But we are friends, and friendship can cover a multitude of sins. Friendship is an empire in itself. Uh, and I think that it's actually quite a virtue that we don't all agree. Uh, I think there's a lot of other like nominally leftist podcasts that uh, that it's probably a bit of an echo chamber, and I think we have some some well-trodden battle lines that I think make the conversation better in my opinion. And we, and I get, and I noticed that on the last podcast that I was on, I think on the, the YouTube, somebody said like, I'm so sick of Victor's liberal bullshit. <laughs> and I got to tell you that warms my heart to see that there's, I love to have an audience that can disagree with me. Uh, it's great. They're sick of your shit. Yeah. What else? I wrote down an intro because you were asking for this last time. Victor. I think it's so, a good idea. I think it's a good idea. I'm glad you're doing we it. We upload every Friday, either here or on Patreon. And then there's bonus episodes and interviews that come out every so often. So how was that? That was my, that was the intro I wrote. out. <laughs> that's good. No, I mean, I think that's good. I think that, uh, it's like the paragraph in the about section on our website. <laughs> I think that we should have a version of that at the beginning of every episode. Maybe we can just record it once, uh, or maybe you can record it once on your own if you want. As I said, everyone's talking about it, so we are going to talk about it too. Everything goes through these news cycles, so we are joining the opinion factory because we're not better than anyone else. We're just late yeah. because we had to finish our double header for the last two weeks on uh, performativity. Yeah, that's it. That, that, how'd that go? Oh yeah, you weren't there for that. Yeah, it, went, mm. it was uh, it was stellar. 
You missed a couple things. Though. I think you would like you missed performative speech acts or the creation of reality through language. Right. Then the creation of identity through other performances. Uh, we discussed Althusser and Judith Butler, but you also missed analytic philosophy of language, which let's be honest, great. No one wants to read except for analytic philosophers of language. Yeah. Damn. Damn. So what are we doing here? Well, usually we What's only discuss current, event? current events when there's something interesting to add to it. I don't know that we have something interesting to add to it, but as Canadians, we almost had a philosopher king this one time <laughs> in uh, Michael Ignatieff, who had some opinions about the Afghan war when it began. Um, and we're going to revisit those opinions. They're horrendous, spoiler yeah. alert. Uh, but they were brought up at the beginning, and the same shit is today being trotted out in the Washington Post. So they, if you say it often enough and over and over again, then someone must believe it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. actually like I'm curious because I haven't actually really been following the opinion pages of this most recent uh, debacle in Afghanistan, but... It's the only thing that I've noticed. I think I, I think like I read something about how on Fox News and the right they're trying to spin it. They're trying to spin the failure as a as like be, be blaming it on wokeness, basically that that's the reason why like the whole thing fell apart. So that was like that just made me laugh. But like beyond that, I don't know what the bad yeah. takes are. Like what are the bad takes? Too many, like, my too take, many gays in the military, probably. My, well, other than that bad, t- yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like uh, you know there wasn't a robust enough manliness in the in the, in the American military to like to it's, it's to foster always, the right kind of values. Always the problem. Anywhere there's a problem, not enough manliness involved. Okay, exactly. <laughs> they're, they're also on the Fox News. I caught that they're uh, kind of against like rescuing people. You know how there's like a big evacuation of all their allies and interpreters and people who've helped them over the years. And Fox is like, just because you fucked up and you have to leave doesn't mean we should take all these people with us and just suspend, you know, immigration policy. Right. Well, like, what the hell's with that? Like, they're trying to say we shouldn't take anybody back. <laughs> With us, they shouldn't get anybody. Just let them all be killed. That's also their position. Just yeah, yeah. always very well thought out and, you know, benevolent. Well, Fox News has a lot of respect for the planning ability of Al-Qaeda, a lot more than they have for their own military. Because unlike the military, Al-Qaeda had a plan. A, do 9-11. B, get the American military to invade and the coalition to invade Afghanistan. C serve as translators, interpreters, and guides for that military. And then D, 20 years later, you can get into America once the project ultimately collapses. So Al Qaeda was actually thinking ahead here. But what is the right like um what is the what are the takes these days cuz i haven't really like been other than the stuff that we read which was obviously like ignatius views from back at the beginning of the afghan war like what are the main battle lines have any of you guys been paying attention to this like cuz it seems like some people are, i guess i'm guessing some of like this must be a minority view though because i feel like the right doesn't believe in uh imperialism imperialism the way it used to so like there there must be some right wingers who are like good we left it's um, not the right wing that's so much the problem. It's whatever class of people reads the Washington Post. And the narrative is something like, who's going to protect Afghan women if we're not going to do it? Um, who cares about the Shias? We don't, or if we're not going to protect them, they're going to get hurt or killed or whatever. 
Um, so imperialism is good because we need it to defend human rights and it's our responsibility to defend human rights. Is that like the kind of um, liberal elitist consensus right now that they should have stayed in Afghanistan? Okay, here's a great, here's Washington Post. I think it was uh, three days ago. Quote, if preventing a terrorist attack on the United States is our only vital national interest in Afghanistan, as Biden said, then why should people in Taiwan or Cuba or Poland think Biden cares anymore about their freedom? <laughs> Dude, I don't think anyone in Cuba was ever concerned that the the U.S. president cared about their yeah. freedom. That's yeah. confusing. Yeah, I mean, that's Biden's standing there saying the this war in Afghanistan was never about nation building. From it was never ever about nation building. It was about rooting out the terrorist elements. Um, and then I don't know. <laughs> it was about nation building. That was clearly by two thousand three four. It was clearly about establishing some sort of democratic government there. And then there was their first democratically elected president not too long afterwards, right? I don't know. I don't really know the timeline on all of this. But was that really the goal? The goal was. I mean, I'm not sure if it was. I mean, no, I the know goal wasn't nation building at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what no, I was like. I don't it, think that it was it ever was, really the goal. It wasn't initially, but it became that way. It became a way to, I guess, justify leaving. Like the whole war seemed to be a lot of it was just like, how the fuck do we get out of here now? Because whenever you do a massive military intervention, even if it's just to root out terrorism, you don't actually have beef with the Afghanistan people or whoever you're intervening on. Then it becomes about well, who all the people you pissed off are going to have all this power when you leave? Well, the rhetoric of empire doesn't change, as, as Spivak said long ago, and it's just as true on uh, Washington Post today. The em rhetoric of empire is always white men saving brown or brown women from brown men. Yeah, the civilizing, the uncivilized, bringing democracy to the backwater, the backwoods, and the backwaters. Yeah, that's always the that's always the rhetoric, and, and but it didn't it didn't start that way. That's the thing. It it was protecting, you know, it was an, it was a national security issue. I guess that's how a lot of things are framed. Well, someone needed to pay, you know. So yeah. A blood, yeah, and like then, they and then have, isn't... the American public would not have tolerated not going to war after 9-11. Yeah, and isn't the way that this kind of ends up working itself out sort of um, just by, ne by the necessity of the situation is like there's an initial justification, right, which is like this war on terror and like like retribution, but then they end up in this place and they make all kinds of sort of like rationalizations about nation building, but they're not even, but if you look, I think, like I read somewhere that the amount of money that they actually spent on like improving the infrastructure was like, kind of indicated that they weren't really serious about nation building. So they were just kind of there occupying it for like strategic, for, for geopolitical strategic reasons. But then there's a bunch of pressures, I feel like. So there's like the geopolitical pressure, but then there, then you end up unavoidably being in this kind of like moral dilemma where like the world's watching and they're like, what are you going to do? Like, are you going to help these people? Like, and then it's like, they're already there. So then there's, it becomes a moral dilemma, which we're seeing unfold now because they made this, this decision to just leave. And now people are dying because of like the way that they left and like the Taliban's going to take over again. That doesn't mean, I mean, I don't think that they should have been there for this long in the first place. It's arguable whether they should have even done anything. I mean, I'm not an IR specialist, but like maybe there's justification for like some airstrikes or something against 
Bin Laden's encampments, but like a full out <laughs> occupation. I mean, I don't know if some, I ever had some drone strikes. <laughs> well, drones didn't really exist back then, but um, but yes, uh, like in general, like I just don't know. So like, I don't think that they should have ever been there, but now that they're there, it's like they left and there's like these pressures, so, like there's the geopolitical pressure. There's like the pressure for like, I don't know. So it, it becomes a very complicated situation is I guess what I'm saying with lots of different um, pressures coming from different sides. Right. And that makes it. Yeah. Here is the best take that I saw from CNN, just going full mask off. They're not saying we need to care about the Shias. We need to care about the Afghan women and girls. It's. The Taliban are sitting on a trillion dollars of minerals and lithium, which are essential to tackling the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. So we need to not only stay there, but mine the shit out of the country, which I don't know however long that'll take. I think it takes like 16 years to get anything out of a mine. But no, they want a war there indefinitely as the mouthpiece of empire so that we can prevent global warming, or at least not let China address global warming, which was another one of their concerns that China's going to move in. And address that's it? Kind of, it's no, because like... lithium, you can make batteries out of it, right? So they're mm. like, Yeah, well, that's right. But it, it takes no none of the geography of Afghanistan into account. It takes none of like, no, no multinational companies want to go there in an in, unstable a political environment and lose their their investment. Um, it's very hard to move shit in and out of the country, needless to say, because it's landlocked and and mountainous. So, anyway, mask yeah, off. Right. Good job, CNN. They have lots of lithium there, and yes, it's crucial in quotation marks to our fight against climate change. Just as our pipeline in Canada is is crucial to our fight against climate change. So it's like they had to perform this like idea that, oh, things are under control. We're just going to leave. So like it just was inevitable. I mean, I don't know how if I buy that completely, but I think it's kind of interesting that there was kind of like this sort of ideological pressure where they had to perform sort of like, oh, everything's good. Like we're going to leave. It's going to be ordered. But if they had done like the evacuation first before uh, pulling the military out, they would have somehow had to like admit and be like, oh, things are actually terrible. So we have to evacuate everyone now. And then if they admit that, then it's like, well, why are you leaving then if everything's terrible? So they were like stuck in this kind of bind, I guess, I think is the idea. This is probably the reason that a lot of leftists and probably most of the liberal party in Canada besides Ignatiev are against this sort of interventionism. And I guess it's called empire building in a sense. I mean, you they were there for 20 years. It kind of was an extension of the American empire in a way. It was occupied. It was sort of soft colonized. And most most liberals, in at least this was something divisive about Ignatieff, was that you know he he pandered to George Bush and he pandered to that sort of war hawkish ethos. But I think a lot of the Canadian liberals weren't like that. They didn't want to intervene because that that exactly this reason it gets you into this really complicated situation where staying is bad and leaving is bad. There's nothing you can do. Some something fucked up's going to happen either way, and the only thing you can do is do your best to minimize the pain and the suffering. And again, like if that's in your interest, right? Whoever's in control at the time, maybe they won't make the preparations. Maybe they'll just fucking pull right out of there. And then 
things will go to shit. They shouldn't have been there in the first place. I just found it funny how these journalist dimwits recite every age-old 300, 400-year-old reason that you need to colonize someone. It's like, the natives have no idea what to do with this gold anyway, besides we need it for our righteous crusade against uh, France and England and the other European powers. Yeah, I think that's a Thomas More quote. <laughs> yeah. These natives have no idea how to work this land. We should just appropriate it and show them how it's done. So then, yeah, I, I mean, probably not all of these journalists agree on this, but the ones that I happened to find in my research for the episode were, don't listen to the American public, Biden, because they don't know what they're talking about. We need to stay. And I just wonder what the incentive is for, I'm so, for saying I'm something so like that. I'm so surprised that like the mainstream consensus seems to be that they should have stayed. I actually didn't, I'm actually, I didn't do enough picking up the pulse of the mainstream media right now. I mean, I listened to this political podcast. Well, they don't want to be embarrassed. That's part of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't lose. <clears throat> Matt, what do you think? You're, you're awfully quiet here. And I feel like this was your, cho your uh, chosen topic at a time. Well, I was just waiting for that to get out of the way, but I think it's actually really important to situate this in relationship to two dates, uh, because that really will help give a better understanding of the kind of neoconservative impetus behind this conflict, right? The first date is 1975, and uh, the kind of embarrassment that the country underwent when it became clear that the South Vietnamese regime was collapsing and that the U.S. had lost the Vietnam War. This was probably the single biggest pusher uh, in the creation of the neoconservative movement, since a lot of the early neoconservatives and Bush officials that launched this war grew up during this time period and felt precisely that sense of humiliation at the United States being kicked out of Southeast Asia by what amounted to like a guerrilla movement. The second date that's really important to note is 1989 with the fall of the Cold War, because what's really interesting about this, uh, when you see how neoconservatives react to it, is that they're not actually as triumphalist as you might expect. Uh, you'd figure that, well, the U.S.'s main enemy is gone. Capitalism and liberal capitalism in particular seems to be ascended everywhere. So this should be a moment of euphoria. But actually, what immediately starts to happen is people become concerned in the conservative movement that without an enemy, uh, what you're going to find is Americans becoming decadent, materialistic, committed to crass uh, individualistic pursuits and not dedicated uh, to the pursuit of grander historical projects like American empire, for example. And they were very, very express about this. Like I have a quote here from William Crystal, uh, who is one of the founding members of the Project for the New American History, where it says, American civilians at home preoccupied with the distribution of tax breaks and government benefits will not come to the military support when the going gets tough. Weak political leadership and a poor job educating the citizenry to the responsibilities of global hegemony Global hegemony is his phrase, uh, having created an increasingly distinct and alien military culture. Ask any mechanic or mess boy on an aircraft carrier why he's patrolling the seas, and he can give you a more sophisticated explanation of power projection than 99% of college graduates. So there's real yearning to find an enemy uh, that the United States could use to essentially demonstrate its might to the rest of the world. Um, and another neocon, Jonah Goldberg, put it even more expressly in the National Review, where he basically, he just said, <clears throat> Every 10 years or so, the United States need to pick, uh, pick up some small, crappy little country and throw it against the wall just to show the world we mean business, right? Uh, and also to kind of reinvigorate the population and get them to commit to these kind of grand historical projects. Yeah, experiment on whatever Halliburton's been working on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes 
people are tempted to give a materialist analysis of these kinds of conflicts and say that, well, the real reason is money. Uh, and certainly that's a huge part of it, you know, the pursuit of mineral wealth, lithium, uh, oil trade routes in Afghanistan. But a lot of the real impetus for it was, I think, actually considerably more ideological. Because uh, if you look at the political right, the things that they were concerned about wasn't monetary wealth. It was the sense that if we do not have a war somewhere, somehow, then what's going to set in is decline. Uh, and with decline will emerge rivals to U.S. American military hegemony around the globe. And we can't have that, which is why we need something like a forever war in order to stimulate the population through terror and through sacrifice uh, in order to maintain American imperial rule. Uh, and what's really fascinating about this is, of course, Many, many Americans, conservatives, were okay with this, but you need to find a way to make that palatable to the general public. Uh, and so what you started to see in the 2000s was the emergence of probably the most politically correct movement I've ever seen in my entire life, which is embodied by people like Ignatiev, uh, which is an effort to try to make American empire innocent in some way, shape, or form by saying, yes, we need to stave off decline. Yes, we need to assert our hegemony around the globe, but it's okay because we're not really an empire. We're an empire light or a humanitarian empire or an empire of rights. And... This is different than any other kind of imperial system in the past because, of course, we're doing it for the right reasons. Uh, and as any of, you, many of you have pointed out, the irony of this, of course, is every empire throughout history, with the exception of the Belgians, has at one point or another claimed that it was warring with its neighbors and destroying whole countries for benevolent reasons because it had a duty to export its glory to the rest of the world. So when we see today a lot of the American media lining up one after another to kind of endorse American imperialism, it doesn't shock me at all. They were pathetic cowards in the 2000s when they all got behind this. They were pathetic cowards in 2008 when they decided to back off it because the political correct veneer wasn't really working anymore. And now when to, in 2021, they're pathetic cowards again uh, who don't have the balls to actually just sit there and say what this was from the very beginning, uh, which was an extraordinarily hubristic effort to try to remake the world, not for the sake of the people living in that country, but for the sake of a couple of an American elites who just can't live with the idea that their country won't be the biggest, baddest, and meanest on the block. And I should all feel ashamed for our culpability in this kind of enterprise. And the sad thing is the only people who are really going to bear any responsibility aren't the criminals who deserve to be in jail in The Hague somewhere, people like Bush, Rove, Cheney, uh, but the people the masters of Afghanistan. Of war. Yeah, the people in Afghanistan are really going to be the ones who suffer They're for gonna sure. Suffer. So my response to this is fuck them all, okay? Yeah. If there's any justice, Bush, Cheney, Rove, Crystal, the whole lot of them uh, would have been in jail from 2001, uh, and they would be sipping on whatever gunk they feed people uh, in the prison system rather than the caviar that they get to dine on every day. Or better yet, what we can do now is export them to Afghanistan, throw them in the middle of Kandahar, and see if they're really the kind of tough guys that they felt it was so important to train and discipline the rest of the American society into becoming. As Charlie Kirk calls them, the muscular class. Yeah. Oh, I know America. loads of mess boys who think William Crystal's a dick, so fuck that guy. Victor, I wanted to say, because I, I gave you what the, the liberal mainstream media was saying the war was about, um, and I actually agree with Matt on this, but the, the left analysis of this is that we were there, or I guess we, yeah, the coalition, we were there for the pipeline and that the Taliban wasn't actually threatening, and for lithium, where not a single mine was built in those 20 years of occupation. So I, I don't buy that. I do buy... It was a bloodlust and it was, 
you hit us, we have to hit back at something. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether it's a state or just an area. And then, hey, we have a foothold for the thing that we really wanted, which is the country that's easier to take their shit. That's because it's already developed yeah. is Iraq. And, and I think it was also just convenient for them to just have like military outposts there to like be able to conduct their various operations, their various black projects from there. But like you so said like earlier, a- they spent two... trillion dollars i think the number was and some around 35 billion of that which is a very small percentage i'm not good at math but that was what was spent on actual infrastructure which became the reason that they were saying that they were there obviously not true no one believes it no one should believe it except for ignatiev so we read for this um trying to get our our canadian theorist what do you? What would we call him? I don't even know what to call him. Whatever. He's it was really a legit a terrifying. He's kind of a historian. Our homegrown liberal war hawk. <laughs> it was a legit terrifying to read. Idiots exactly like this guy is why we've been there for twenty years. Profoundly ignorant, profoundly self righteous is a deadly cocktail. So, I learned today he's a member of the Order of Canada. Mm-hmm. Fuck that sad. For mm-hmm. uh, his work as a human rights scholar. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I should say, I initially supported him for leader of the Liberal Party, in part because I like that book, The Rights Revolution. It's not a great book, but it was pretty good. Uh, then I transitioned away from that when I realized he was doing things like supporting American empire uh, and also what he called the lesser evil, which is basically just, again, another politically correct way of saying, if we torture, uh, then somehow that's vindicated uh, because we need to do whatever we need to in order to uphold American military and Western hegemony. Uh, whereas if they do bad things, then that's an entirely different moral matter, of course. The ends justify the means. So Ignatiev is probably not a familiar name anymore. He was he was well-read at this point, particularly for this essay and the book that accompanied it, Empire Light. We read, uh, what is it, Nation Building Light? Mm-hmm. And the long story short is you shouldn't do Nation Building Light. You should be doing it hard. You should be fully committed. Um, He was a Harvard prof, also U of T prof, came back and ran for the prime minister of Canada. The worst showing in the Liberal Party's recent history got absolutely obliterated, not just because he's a dumbass, there are other factors, but partially because he's a dumbass. Um, He even lost his own seat, which in Canadian elections is kind of the most embarrassing outcome of an election that you can have for a party leader. He could turn a phrase, but not a vote, that's for sure. Yeah, it's the first time the liberals were ever in third place, I think, uh, like maybe ever or for like maybe at least like over 100 years. I'm not exactly sure. In recent history, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jack Layton took him down with some. Never mind. That's too deep. Keep going. Well, he came from Harvard back to Canada, tried to run, but was apparent to everybody that he had his head so far up his own ass that he couldn't tell the two apart anymore. So supposedly the most prestigious school in the country um, turns into some priggish bromide mill. But Matt, I have not heard this story. You've met the guy. I have to hear this story. Okay. I met the guy twice uh, and he was a douchebag on both occasions, but a douchebag in a somewhat different way. The first time I met him, I was working as a secretary um, for a liberal MP over the summer, which was a pretty good job, actually. I got to go to Parliament Hill and learn everything. Uh, Our politics didn't really align, but, you know, I was 20 and I didn't know any better at that point. Uh, But I got a phone call um, and I picked up the phone and I was like, blah, blah, blah. This is the office of, you know, the member of Parliament I work for. And the guy on the phone was like, Matthew, do you know who this is? And I was like, what? He's like, 
Matthew, this is Michael Ignatieff. And he just slowly <laughs> accentuated the words for effect, right? Because he clearly thought I was supposed to be blown away uh, by the fact that he was calling and deigning to speak uh, to the plebes, right? And what bothered me about this so fucking much is his party was in the dumps uh, at that point when it came to the polling. And I was like, who the fuck are you to be this arrogant to think you're a celebrity when you're probably carrying the party to its worst showing ever? And then sure enough, what happened happened uh, and he wound up in the ash heap of Canadian history. But I met him a few years later when he came to Osgoode Hall Law School because I was at a conference uh, taking notes. It was generally a pretty good conference, but somebody asked him a little bit about his election experience. This is when he was still pretending that he was going to stay in Canada and not immediately go back to Harvard when it was safe to do so. Uh, and then the Central, Amer uh, Central European University. But they asked him and he was like, well, you know, the thing is, I never really realized that politics isn't like a debate. You know, when we were at Harvard, if you sat there and you presented your position, people would listen to you and they would take what you said seriously and then they would offer a rebuttal. And I'm just really surprised that that's not the way it happened when I moved to this country because they just kept on attacking me and nobody wanted to listen to what I said. And I was like, you were a fucking political scientist and you didn't realize that <laughs> real world politics doesn't operate like a fucking seminar? Like, are you joking? Like, you could fucking spend five hours in a fucking campus club and you'd realize that like you don't even need to be in fucking government to know that like just flabbergasting like ignorance uh, and then sure enough after it was safe for him uh he tucked his tail ran uh, and did indeed leave the country which is ironically exactly what the conservative said he was going to do exactly what she said he was not going to do and exactly what he ended up doing so i am not very fond of the guy uh, hey that's your harvard education well that's that guy you know you know, rereading re these articles, and I mean, I guess I, I was pretty young in the 9-11 attack. I wasn't like politically switched on. I was in my fucking teens, my tweens, whatever. But I never realized I'm now remembering and recalling how much this guy actually shaped the discourse of in Canadian politics over all of these issues. How much this guy, yeah, Michael Ignatieff, I mean, shaped the discourse in, in Canada at least. And I'm sure his kowtowing to George Bush probably made him a celebrity in the States as well, which is hence his Harvard shit. I never realized, and like now rereading this, I'm reminded like all this stuff. I remember hearing about it in school and not really understanding it because I was very young at the time. And now I'm just like, wow, this guy, this guy set the terms of the debate. Like he's, he's undeniably, I mean, he's become irrelevant, quite irrelevant, but and he's basically retreated into his lecture circuiting and his teaching. But, um, yeah, he he really set the he really set the tone on these issues, and really everyone's perspective on what a liberal should believe comes from this guy, who's actually like a minority. Like liberal interventionists are kind of a minority in, position in our in, country. In, yeah, in in at least in our country, I don't know about the Democrats in in the states, but in liberals in Canada, they, they're definitely not interventionists like this guy was. But at the time, it seemed like they all were like this guy. So here's the here's the short version, the Coles uh, notes. One of our dumbest exports, not our dumbest. We all know who that is. But the, <laughs> this is the embodiment of state philosophy. Supported the Afghan war. Supported the Iraq war. Supported the, torture, the one. supported torture in the defense of freedom or whatever until Abu Ghraib <laughs> came out. Then he yeah. turned tail on that and said, of course, I never would have supported that. 
Um, Ooh, that's a little bit extreme. But America, this is a Canadian saying this, which is so fucking weird. America has the responsibility to create a humanitarian empire, quote unquote, through nation building and if necessary, then then military force. So pretty much everything that I read to you at the beginning that is still being said in, in WAPO and, and CNN. Wow. Yeah, I should say also, he was taken as authority until people realized he didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. And he was wishy-washy on all of his positions because our great moral saint, uh, it turns out, is actually pretty flexible in his opinions. So probably the most ugly example of this was in the late 2000s when he was running for leader of the Liberal Party, uh, Israel invaded Lebanon uh, to counter Hezbollah. And early in the week, he said, I'm not losing any sleep about this. Israel has a right to defend itself. It's a sovereign nation state. And then he got some pushback. And then a week later, he was like, no, 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 I'm sorry, I misspoke. What happened in Hezbollah in Lebanon is actually a war crime. And Israel should feel really bad about this. And people pointed out, you flip flopped on this like 100% in the course of one fucking week. Like last week, you were like, I know best, I'm an expert. And now you're just like, I fucking I was wrong about that. It's actually a really tra like horrible thing what's going on there. And you can only do that so many fucking times before people realize, A, you don't know what you're talking about, and B, you're full of shit. Uh, and not knowing what you're talking about and being full of shit is a lethal combination. And it's just a toxic thing that this man was able to influence so many people over the course of nine years. And we would have all been better off if he had just decided to be quiet and lecture on Isaiah Berlin, which was probably the only thing he was ever really adept at. <laughs> Which is why he le lost every political debate he was in for leadership roles and for well, But government. Eric, you don't understand. Politics <laughs> is supposed to be like a seminar, right? You express <laughs> yeah. your point and when then we evaluate them Socratically and people aren't going to attack you and they're not going to be mean. That would mm -hmm. be really unfair, Eric. And that would never happen in the real world. The real world is a very genteel place. It's like Habermas's deliberative democracy. It's a seminar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no. Um, Can I just say I'm glad we're all together here shitting on liberals together for once? <laughs> yeah, well, I, w I was going to get to that and say that, like, um, you know, liberals need not actually support this. Um, no true liberals. Philosophical liberals. But there's a distinction between philosophical liberals, the Liberal Party of Canada, and then, like, this kind of, like, broader, like, like pejorative term liberal. But, um, but what I wanted to say is... Lib. Are these actual like opinion pieces, like supporters of interventionism? Like I, I find that hard to believe. Like I would imagine that a lot of people's arguments are more like kind of pragmatic. It's like we're already in there. Like what's actually pragmatically like the best thing to do? And it's like maybe like I'm not. I actually disagree with that view. But I, but I think. But I guess like what I'm trying to get at is, I don't like. Do you think that interventionism? Like I feel like it's never been less popular. Like, like, I feel like no one seriously actually believes in interventionism anymore. Like, like, I don't think so. Like, like, I think those opinion pieces that we're reading are more like people being pragmatic and they're like, well, we're already in there. So like, what, like, what should we do? We're in there. Like, like, that's like what's going to gonna actually like, that's good to point out because this was written in, uh, July, whereas the war started in what, October. So this is only a few months after. And I guess they probably started asking the question then, why are we here? Like we already overthrew the Taliban and he gave them a reason to stay. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is part of the problem though, because a lot of the neocons again were deeply inspired um, by American failure in Vietnam, figuring they could do better. And then 1989, which they saw as kind of proof of the legitimacy of the liberal capitalist order. But if you look at the history of interventionism, uh, 
as a kind of technique uh, to try to constrain various forms of state domination and state tyranny. It's not typically very effective. Usually the paradigm cases that people point to is, well, we intervened in the Second World War, if you want to call that an intervention, uh, and we stopped Germany from killing more people, and we stopped Imperial Japan from killing more people. But one of the things that's very rarely acknowledged is that not only were both of those powers completely eradicated by the end of that conflict, but there are still American soldiers in Japan and in Germany right now. Uh, and the country poured billions of dollars in aid, which is a tremendous sum at the time, to basically reconstruct the countries from the ground up and then engage in this very concerted effort both to democratize Japan and to denazify. Uh, this was later on, as it was called, Germany. No comparable effort was made during any of these interventions, either in Iraq or Afghanistan, because the reality was, of course, they're not Western nations and we don't need them to actually help us fight uh, against the Soviet Union. Uh, so almost immediately after the Afghan war began, it was subcontracted out to a bunch of brutal mercenaries uh, who had no loyalty in the population or the Northern Alliance, which was a motley collection of anti-Taliban fighters who controlled 10% of the country prior to the invasion. Uh, and they started withdrawing troops, resources, all kinds of equipment, and basically decided to subcontract out the conflict uh, to these mercenaries and the government. And you shouldn't be surprised what's going to happen in these kinds of instances, that everything falls apart. Uh, and the reason they did that is, of course, Bush and his infinite wisdom decided that it was far more important to engage in this prestigious conflict to please his father uh, by wiping Saddam Hussein off the map. And how did that go, right? They wiped Saddam Hussein off the map. Uh, they tried their best to liquidate all the infrastructure in Iraq. And many, many of the members of the Ba'ath Party ended up flocking to what later became the Islamic State. And hundreds of thousands of people ended up dying in the region because one American president was too stupid to actually recognize he had no business being there in the first place, even if his dad did call, did call him a loser at one point in his lifetime. He should have just sat there and realized that he is a fucking loser, and this is the best he's ever able to do. So it's a real travesty what's happened, because uh, if they were going to intervene and we were going to try to nation build, then we should have recognized that, A, this is the wrong thing to do, but B, if you're going to do it, it's going to be a hugely intensive, extraordinarily expensive, long-term project that's probably going to take decades, longer than any of our lifetimes, if you want to look back to the Jap Japanese or German precedents. Right. Uh, and the Americans circa 2010 wanted, oh, sorry, 2000, wanted to have it both ways where they wanted to nation build, but they wanted to do it on the cheap at low cost and with minimal effort. And again, the only people who ended up suffering primarily because of this were the poor people in the American military, who I feel genuinely very bad to and the coalition military, because I have no problem with the grunts on the ground and the people of Afghanistan and Iraq and the broader Middle East, uh, all of whom have every reason to be outraged at what's happened to their country and why such stupid people, uh, and that such stupid people were allowed so much power to fuck things up as badly as they did. Well, and, and I will say like, especially um, actually like American military members, because like a lot of people join the military in America because like they just need healthcare and they yeah. need options, right? Like they need a way of like, of getting uh, paid to go to school. And it's like they join the military and then all of a sudden they have to fucking go to some shit stupid war. It's 100%. like at least another, at least in other, other coalition members here, like in Canada, like you're not faced if you're a low-income person you're not faced with that same pressure that would that would push you to join the military absolutely and then, nothing and then when they're the back here and they're veterans who do the proud boys and the QAnons sure. recruit to go and fuck up the white house in their alt-right rallies is the veterans okay yeah <laughs> they're not I mean, all they come back with this trauma anyway i don't blame them for that <laughs> but i mean what's really fascinating about this is again how much it prefaced uh what i now call postmodern conservatism right uh, i mean people forget this but in 2004 
uh, a New York Times reporter had an interview with Karl Rove, uh, and he talked about how it later became out of it was Karl Rove. Uh, and Rove told him, all you people in the so-called reality-based community don't realize that we're an empire. We are history's actors, and at some point or another, we create our own reality, and you people will just be left to read about what it is that we've done, right? Uh, and the kind of astonishing hubris it takes to envision uh, that you have the power to kind of recreate reality from the ground up, abstracting away from historical conditions, material conditions, the kind of differentiated uh, theologies that exist in the region, uh, the kind of person with that kind of remove from everyday life should never have been put in that kind of position of authority in the first place. And what's incredibly sad about this is there are thousands of Karl Roves in every American administration, all of whom have the same kind of bombastic opinion, all of whom make the same mistakes repeatedly, and all of whom, quite frankly, deserve to be in jail. And not even just American, I was trying to stress at the beginning, like the British said every same thing about why they should be in India. They gave every every similar excuse. No, we're doing good. And I don't know. Like, I don't actually have an opinion on that because I don't know shit about geopolitics in that sense. But the arguments are the same, and it's the same trotted out, uh, you know, mantra. I should say that Noam Chomsky pointed this out when he was having an argument with Bill Buckley about Vietnam in the 1970s, where Buckley is like, well, but let's look at, like, humanitarian reasons for empire and intervention. We can see plenty of those. And Chomsky very rightly pointed out to him that... Every single tyrannical empire that has existed throughout history, going back to Cain and Abel, uh, has somehow felt morally vindicated in bringing its glory through violence to the rest of the world. The only exception to this rule, as you pointed out, and I think this is probably true, uh, were the Belgians in the Congo, where they didn't even make the pretense that they were doing anything for moral reasons. King Leopold was just, we're invading, I want money, I'm going to be the richest person in the entire world, and if millions uh, of sub-Saharan Africans need to die to achieve that, then so be it. It's worth it. Right. Uh, so this hubristic conceit that there can ever be an empire that's somehow innocent is just so remarkable uh, in its tractability and appeal and so deadly in its consequences that we permanently need to immunize ourselves against it any way possible because of all the damage that it's caused historically. I would totally prefer this John Hagee line that we're fighting like a cosmic war against an entire empire of Satan worshipers than no, we're actually doing this for their benefit. But anyway, I mean, if I can turn to the article for a second, um, I think we've all read it, but <laughs> did you guys, <laughs> the whole beginning, quotes. the whole start of this article, like for paragraphs upon paragraphs, he gives this long, horny description of this Afghan warlord, describing him like deep set eyes with the cold intensity of a religious <clears throat> warrior. <clears throat> He stands there like a lion flicking his tail. <laughs> you know this guy. Yeah. He's using he's using his like uh, journalistic background or whatever, but he feels cucked. He definitely feels cucked in front of this warlord. So he's gonna get him back by uh, by getting the empire to come. <laughs> but anyways, um, half about halfway through, he switches tone, and we can see this in this in this following quotation. Effective imperial power requires controlling the subject's people's sense of time. Sorry, I fucked that up. Effective imperial power requires controlling the subject people's sense of time, convincing them that they will be ruled forever. The illusion of permanence was one secret of the British Empire's long survival. Empires cannot be maintained and national interests cannot be secured over the long term by a people always looking for the exit. This fucking sounds like Homie K. Baba wrote it. 
Like it sounds like a critical mm-hmm. theorist wrote it, but he's criticizing the American military for not subjugating the Afghani mind into thinking that they're going to be there forever. And he says that was their mistake. This is why it's empire light as opposed to empire proper. We didn't control their minds enough. And that's the problem. Yeah, but I don't think that's a big surprise. I mean, again, look at William Crystal on the project for the new American century. He overtly says that the biggest problem is American civilians are too concerned with refrigerators and television to assume the great burden uh, of maintaining, quote, global hegemony. He doesn't shy away from this word. And I think this is one of the things that leftists don't always understand about more conservative liberals and members of the conservative tradition, which which is that the smartest amongst them are far more reflective and cognizant of what it is that they're trying to do and how it is that they can go about achieving their goals than we often give them credit for. Think about somebody like Carl Schmitt, for example. Uh, And often it's political conservatives who are the best students of left-wing theory precisely because they appreciate that leftists have a good understanding of how it is that power operates. Uh, The difference is they don't want to be critical of it. They want to mobilize those intellectual and theoretical resources in order to maintain systems of hegemony that they think are beneficial and that will somehow also eventually be vindicated and appreciated by the people at the bottom. It's this very insidious kind of way of reasoning about things that's proven very, very beneficial uh, to conservative movements throughout history. Going back to somebody even like Edmund Burke or Joseph Jemaistre, who said, we need to learn from the Jacobins because if we don't learn from them and apply the same kind of techniques, they're going to win. And of course, we can't have that, right? Neoconservatives were originally leftists who eventually said, leftists are going to lead to American decline, so we need to learn from them while trying to reestablish and re-reify the project of American empire, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, I, I don't know if I conservatives are the best students of they are, leftists. They, they're no, best as Leo Strauss. Opener. I mean, the version of yeah. Leo I Strauss. mean, long, long time ago, maybe this was true. True. Yeah, it's, it's hard to look at Charlie Kirk and say like, oh, you know, he's going to be an intellectual beacon who's reading Foucault and operationalizing it for the maintenance of Trumpism. Yeah, like Shapiro yeah. and Peterson really have their finger on the pulse of the left. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm, I, I wanted to ask a question, a sort of like a prob, a bit of a provocation, which is like, like liberalism, I like to me, it, it seems imperialism seems contrary to philosophical liberalism. Like, like, to, like to me, it's like this, like I, I think about like, even if I think about like Star Trek, like the prime directive, right? Like, you know, don't interfere in other cultures. Like the, like this, I mean, not that that's like, you know, from philosophical liberalism, but I mean, I associate that attitude. I mean, that seems like to follow from like kind of respecting the autonomy of, I mean, I'm no like liberal IR theorist, but it just seems to me that like liberal, like imperialism doesn't follow. I mean, Matt, I, I don't have, know. What do you think? From, no, from, don't from ask liberal. him. We get to respond. I have definitely heard this idea is that, yeah, liberalism and imperialism, like liberal interventionism seems like an oxymoron, right? Because like, how can you be a liberal if you're also an interventionist? It seems like an oxymoron. At least philosophically. And the, and the, and I mean, the, the way it kind of rolls out empirically is that liberals are very good at, you know, they have been historically very successful at at arguing for 
the need to spread liberal rights, right? The idea of liberal democracy and 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 humanism and 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 universal rights. They've been very vocal and very successful in bringing those ideas onto the global stage along with globalization and saying that this is a necessity and we need to deal with nations that need to adopt these rules and those sorts of things. But then once those rules get taken on to some degree, liberals are also very notorious for becoming extremely conservative and not knowing what to do next. Once people adopt a modicum of, say, universal suffrage, rights to education and health and all those things, once once those things start to gain ground, liberals then tend to start to become very conservative, not not actual conservatives, but like like they tend to not want to, you know, you know, break the mold anymore. The, like liberalism broke the mold, say in the 19th and early 20th century. And then now that we sort of have these ideas as our baseline, liberalism also tends to seem very conservative in a lot of its avenues because, because of just that, because those are ideas that we seem to take for granted here in the Western world. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think, well, quickly though, um, you know, I, I do think that uh, that that like kind of empirically it's it's unfolded that way, but I think at least philosophically it doesn't seem to follow. Although I will say that there are people who argue that like liberalism, even philosophically, there's like a kind of cultural imperialist a aspect to it. And like actually, we have this complaint from the right, from the far right, from people like Alexander Dugin in Russia who argue that like liberalism. Because of its, uh, like, because it's, it's like if you want to engage with the liberal democratic countries, it's like you kind of have to accept some of their rules, uh, like, like I don't know. He'll often complain about like sort of like like Western cultural liberalism invading uh, like the Russian society and starting to make ideas like gay marriage and transgender rights, uh, you know, make them more acceptable. It's like he sees that coming from like a reactionary right perspective as a kind of liberal uh, imperialism. That's very different than the kind of imperialism we're talking about, obviously. But I guess like it's true that I guess as a philosophical liberal, like you might be like, well, I'm not going to do business with with this country or whatever this if they don't adopt which I guess kind of has a sort of um, effect, a sort of imperialistic effect, but it's not overt imperialism. Um, but uh, but yeah, but, but I mean, I agree with what you said, Eric, though, that like in practice, it does seem like people who like do things under the flag of liberalism somehow can like fall into a kind of imperialism. I mean, I agree. I, I think that that's true, but I don't think that that necessarily says anything about the philosophical. Just like I would say that, you know, just because most socialist or communist countries have ended in like genocide i don't think that that actually says anything about the philosophy of socialism and communism i just think that in practice the attempts have just led to that for various reasons and i think you could say something similar about like liberalism and 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 neo and, and imperialism i would like to submit that ignatiev demonstrates in this piece a consequentialist liberalism which is saying we might have to do a little bit of imperialism here and bad things might happen, but it's going to be better in the long run. And most of the article is pointing out all the problems that he has with the way that Afghanistan is being run. They're not addressing that there's no faith in the government. There is no sustained agriculture because farmers have like mines in their fields, so they can't like uh, till the land. The government doesn't have fax machines. Uh, the coalition is relying on warlords to keep the peace. And all the money is not going to building infrastructure. It's going to Western organizations because 
also the the coalition doesn't trust the the Afghani government. So what does that really mean though? Is like if we stay there long enough, then we're gonna get all the shit that liberals desire. But he's he ignores all the subtext of what it actually takes to change a country in that way. He wants all this development. He wants the warlords to put down their guns. He wants the tribes to all get along, and he wants the Taliban to stop hiding in caves. But what does that he require? Also Harper to, he also wanted Stephen Harper to stop being so mean to him because it undermines support for the Liberal Party. So yeah. this isn't a man who has a very realistic vision of what the real world is like. Oh, my God. Exactly. What does that mean in the real world? How easy is it to say... We should take away the warlord's guns. Easy. But what does that mean? As soon as you ask nicely and they say no and they will say no, now you're advocating taking away the warlord's guns by force. Just going to guess that they're not going to let that happen peacefully, which means, in effect, killing a whole bunch of Afghani teenagers. How's that going to fly among your subject population, you fucking moron? And then he says, we need to put non-corrupt people in power. Again, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you're just going to find altruistic, democratic-minded, educated people sitting around and install them at every level of government, not expecting them to act in their self-interest, protected by the police until everyone starts to what? Just trust them? No one fucking trusts the police in Afghanistan. They would rather have the Taliban than the current police. But the dumbest shit this guy ever said is that a centralized government is going to sway people's loyalties from their cultural and ethnic groups that are older than the fucking country is. Oh yeah. So yeah, all we need to do to solve every problem of imperialism is just a little bit more imperialism than to quote unquote, develop agriculture and industry the way he proposes so that Afghanistan can export. Well, in every single other case that's happened, that means inviting in foreign multinationals to, again, quote unquote, develop, which never has local interests in mind. So basically, turn it into a colony with a bunch of Western educated bureaucrats to negotiate with Western countries. That's fucking it, a colony. Tales old as time. Uh, by the way, I believe, in fact, I know that Afghanis want schools, hospitals, stability but do they want to be an extraction colony i'd bet not and what does ignatia think this time is going to be different someone's just going to dump a trillion dollars into afghanistan to get their mining industry going out of the goodness of their hearts you fucking morons kind of global let's just forget every other time that exactly this has already been done and tried oh yeah absolutely i mean the biggest problem with both of these imperial projects afghanistan and iraq uh was there was this really tabula rousa type attitude uh, that the Bush administration initially took towards both of them, uh, where in Afghanistan, the Northern Alliance, again, controlled 10% of the country. Um, they basically drove the Taliban out, installed uh, the Northern Alliance, and then Karzai uh, for several decades. Had both This administration had very little support on the ground, and they never really invested uh, the kind of time, money, or power that would be necessary in order to legitimate it in the eyes of the people. Uh, and one of the other big mistakes that they made was precisely, as you pointed out, ignoring the tribal leaders, who many of whom came from families who had been in charge of these local regions for centuries, and just assuming that we need to build democratic institutions on the model of a kind of Western uh, democratic state in this country, and this will replace this kind of tribalistic kleptocratic system, uh, which is very foolish. It was even worse in Iraq, uh, where they initially just dissolved the Ba'ath Party, 
sent all uh, the officials back home uh, and then tried to get rid and liquidate the military. And the mentality was, well, better to start fresh. But then, of course, all these personnel from the Basque Party and from the Iraqi military decided to lend their services elsewhere, usually to the very fundamentalists that we claim we were going to protect. Uh, so this kind of millenarian blow it up uh, and just rebuild from the ground up disposition was extraordinarily poorly thought out, right? Just remarkably badly thought out. Well, he couldn't win an election in Canada. I don't think we should trust him on Afghanistan anyway. But the fact that he had enough confidence to put this in the New York Times. Well, you know, if you've, Michael Ignatieff, never let not knowing anything about anything get in the way of his having something to say about a subject (laughs) matter. That's what I learned about the guy, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I guess it's probably too little too late to talk about the kind of critical theory take on 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 war in the 20th and 21st century but i mean some of the comments earlier about about this has always been the the way of empire and and this is imperialism is you know as old as as human beings and political gather like it's it's not quite true cuz you know war has fundamentally changed over the 20th century right you know, you know, even Ignatieff wrote a book called Virtual War, which is about the ways, you know, like most people, m- me included, like I don't get the first person view of war. I get it mediated to me through CNN, newspapers, images in the media, right? And what war becomes is something that isn't real, right? This is like Baudrillard's point about war. It's not like he he wrote those those papers, right? The the Gulf War never happened. And it's not that he's saying it's not real. It's that he's saying it was broadcast live and the event itself was distributed through the media. The event itself, like the the part on the ground, what happened really was such a small part of the global broadcasting of this event through all the media channels and the curated sort of live feeds and images we would see. And war today is so much different than it was. You know, it transformed during the Cold War, right? It completely transformed. We don't, major powers don't go to war with each other because they have nukes. That's just the obvious thing. We have all these sorts of scares, nuclear scares. We don't, we're not afraid of them anymore for some reason, but they don't happen, right? We get into these proxy wars, right? Pakistan hates India, so they fund the Taliban, right? And then America doesn't like what is going on there, so America intervenes because Afghanistan's not a major power. They don't have nukes. They were afraid that Iraq did. Turned out they didn't. So I guess all's well that ends well there. They got Saddam. But you know the 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 way that war is conducted today is completely different it's not nation building right it's not i mean it's not empire building it's nation na- sometimes it's under the banner of nation building but nobody's expanding their empires anymore those conservatives you were talking about earlier like dugan and yoram those guys are concerned with this sort of old nostalgic view of empires expanding their borders that doesn't fucking happen anymore oh i think it does i mean yoram is actually endorsing 
expansion. Okay, it does because Israel is wants to conquer Palestine and, and, and extend its borders. Dugan is also expansion of the Russian, yeah, essentially like a neo-Russian empire. Eurasianism. Eurasianism. That is such oh, yes. an old school fucking way to do it. And okay, maybe Israel will succeed in exterminating Palestinians and expanding yeah, their borders into I'm, their... I'm just saying though, Eric, we can have them both. I mean, people can be assholes in many different ways. We can have one kind of empire and then a second empire on top of it. We don't need to be exclusionary that way. The way most, the way we conserve images. When has state building ever worked? Why don't you go ask Honduras and Guatemala how they feel about state building? Uh, I think it clearly worked again. If you look at, I think the only instances I can think of it, but being relatively successful again, uh, were in Germany and Japan. Um, and again, that's still an ongoing project because as pointed out, we still have military personnel there. Right. Uh, you might also be able to argue for South Korea. Right. But well, most people would argue that those that those cases were successful because of already a lot of pre-existing conditions. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, They're exceptional cases. Right. Like, yeah. like it's like you, you have to have like like a baseline of like um, like I've actually been reading a book recently. Well, demographic uh, coherence actually, would be the first thing that Afghanistan doesn't. Yeah. Have. Well, th well, that's this is what pisses that's, me well, off is this guy fucking uses Bosnia as, as an example. Like, oh, look. They're both Muslims. Why can't they both learn to get along? Regardless of the fact that fucking <laughs> Bosnia is like a 20th the size of Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And that, that's where the, the weird thing comes into play as well about the motivations. It's like, how do you really determine what the motivation is? Is it ideological? I don't know how many times I've... I've watched uh, detective shows and been like, actually, he wasn't after the money. It was an ideological murder. I don't think that ever happens in, in those sorts of... But we do make those allowances for the states and the reasons they go into other countries. Is it, It's ideological. It has nothing to do with the material benefits or the wealth or the natural resources. It's ideological. Okay? I, I've never murdered anybody for material reasons. I only murder people for ideological reasons. All right? That's... That's what I believe in, not what I want. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is he was asked years later, what did you learn from the Iraq-Afghanistan debacle? And Ignatius' response was, well, I realized that motivations and intentions matter. Uh, and when asked to clarify, what he said, fuck? I was shocked to, he's like, I was shocked to realize that sometimes <laughs> people will say that they want to do things for a good reason, and it turns out they don't. I'm like, wow, so you've discovered the concept of lying. <laughs> so <laughs> you if you've got a Harvard degree between the years of 2000 and 2010, go ask for your money back. Uh, it's like, wow, you've, so you've now understood human duplicity. It's amazing. This is a political you know fucking scientist. Yeah. I mean, if if he's ever heard of like what goes on in the discussion under post-nationalism, right? We're not we're not like all these individual nation states looking to expand our borders. We are a globalized world at war with itself, right? It's if it's an ideological war, then it's an ideological war that's internal, not not with an external enemy. Of course, we like to have an external enemy because that's really nice to justify. And give you know the people something to hate, something to get behind. But really, it's war with the self, right? It's an internal war, a war with terrorism in Afghanistan. That's not a war with some external enemy, right? Nobody's no, Afghanistan isn't a newly discovered land. It's a new, well, if anything, it's a newly created land after World War II. But with with this war, it comes off like it's. Purely, I don't know. I guess the the motivation maybe isn't ideological. It, maybe it isn't material. It's some kind of it's some kind of virtual war, as both Baudrillard and <laughs> fucking Ignatieff would say. 
But the virtuality of the war means that it's mediated and presented to us in a certain way. And we receive it in that way. We don't know what's really going on. But we have to we have to sort of infer from what we're given in the media, right? Like that's I guess that's that's the sort of point, right? Like Vietnam was the first televised war and the Gulf War was one of the first wars that was also all these strange images like GIS and we got to see like rocket vision and like all those weird things that you would get. It was there's a lot of live footage as well. And that's why the war never happened, is because it really just happened on our television screens. And that the, the critical perspective builds from there. <laughs> Stay tuned for my next video. Anyway, we'd be remiss. I think we're all like mostly in agreement, but I'd be remiss if I didn't include his last paragraph in this discussion, which is just profoundly racist and colonial. But in a mm. final brilliant moment, it, it has to be intentional. Like I can't, I cannot imagine that you would quote uh, Rudyard Kipling and not mean this, but he says, the nation builders to bet on are those refugee families piled onto the brightly painted Pakistani trucks, moving up the dusty roads. The children perched on mattresses, <laughs> Like Mowgli, astride the head of an elephant, gazing towards home. A fictional <laughs> fucking Indian boy created by Mr. White Man's Burden himself. When you're imperializing, who gives a shit? Indian, Afghani, whatever, they're all the same. But he quoted fucking Mr. White Man's Burden saying, these are the people that I'm betting on. No one with a doctorate <laughs> is that dumb. I refuse to believe it. And if it's intentional, then just fuck off. It's it's just, do you think, do you, is it also possible that just like 2003 or two or whenever this was, was just like a much more different time than we realized? Oh God. He I says, know, he I, says imperialism used to be the white man's burden. That gave it a bad reputation, but imperialism does not stop being necessary just because it is politically incorrect. Like, I wonder, I just, just like the only reason I'm saying that is not to like excuse it. It's just like, it's just like, I just can't imagine how an editor would have like, like today, I just don't think that it would be possible for like an editor to go through that and be like, yes, this is good. Like, like, I think that it's just, uh, I don't know, it must have been just more different. Like, then we it sounds we like something it. that would get published under the Trump administration. Oh, as yeah, well. I was gonna say, the Claremont Institute would eat that shit up. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's true. He's not only I mean, the horny for the Afghan warlord, he's also really horny for this JSOC guy that he keeps talking about. Like an American with a floppy hat with wraparound sunglasses who stands silently in all the rooms and then orders airstrikes like when necessary. The muscular just... class. Without, so here, worry, quote, though, last quote. Without the Americans in floppy hats, nobody is going to feel safe enough to start building a house with bricks. I mean, it, it's not half as bad as the shit Tucker Carlson spews like on a daily basis, but but Tucker Carlson is not wrestling with moral issues on the world stage. He's talking to fucking asshole Americans who want to vote Republican. He, Ignatieff was trying to like stage this sort of moral debate <laughs> in the pages of the New York Times, with pe which people from other countries do read. I'm not sure who from other countries watches fucking Fox and Friends. I do. It's confusing, though, oh. that, like, people like Tucker, that people <laughs> like Tucker Carlson, 
like people like Tucker Carlson are all of a sudden like there's a weird shifting because when Trump was president, I mean, this we, we don't have time to talk about this, I guess, but it's just funny how when Trump was president, um, there was like all this anti-imperialism on the right. And now, like, I think Tucker Carlson and these others are kind of like having these uh, all of a sudden now they're saying, oh, the reason we lost like we lost the war and we should be ashamed for all this stuff and wokeness in the military. And but, but I don't know. And then before it was Trump's idea to fucking leave. It's just anyway, I think it was Obama, too. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, yeah. a couple of people have asked me and been very critical of me for not connecting neoconservatism to what I call postmodern conservatism. So to those of you who've sent me nasty emails about this, I have detected the exact moment where the transition takes place. Uh, and it's very much in the line that Eric was talking about. Uh, it's in Dinesh D'Souza's book, The Enemy at Home, The Cultural Left and Its Responsibility for 9-11. Okay, so <laughs> what? in this book, uh, this is his 2007 book, so by Dinesh D'Souza, before Lovely. he goes to jail. Uh, he says, in faulting the cultural left for 9-11, I am not making the absurd accusation that this group blew up the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. I am saying that the cultural left and its allies in Congress, the media, Hollywood, the nonprofit center, and of course the universities, uh, are the primary cause of the volcano of anger towards America that is erupting from the Islamic world. The Muslims who carried out the 9-11 attacks were the products of this visceral rage. Yeah, it was movies that did it. <laughs> That's a 9-11 conspiracy theory I haven't heard that Will and Grace So this is the it. tipping point where neoconservatism transitions to this idea that the enemy within is the more important one. They really wanted to stop the Avengers from coming out with all these sequels, and it, it didn't work, unfortunately. <laughs> the Avengers live on, and the World Trade Center does not, and that's 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 their failure for not bombing Hollywood. They got the wrong coast, I think. Yeah, it's our fault for not being nearly horny enough for JSOC. <laughs> they should. They didn't fly planes at Harvard or or Hollywood studios. That was their that was their bad. Wasn't that a Simpson joke at one point? Like, oh, Yale could use an international airport. <laughs> yeah, that would be better. Uh, cool. Yeah, that, that no, no, lots more. I was just gonna say that. I mean, it feels like a, a good place to wind things down here. I feel like I got something got something out of my system that just pent up through the course of reading the article. Then fucking Mowgli and the JSOC guy in the concluding. If anyone wants to read it, read just the last the last section. I'm, I actually I did. I did have one final question, which is just like uh, pills. Do you see uh, like continuity between like this topic? I wonder how you see it relating back to like the, the your your video, uh, your documentary. I mean, certainly reading all that shit has made me far more conspiratorially minded. And if it doesn't make sense on the surface, there's probably a reason for it. And if quote unquote freedom is the reason given by the imperial ventriloquist dummies at WAPO, there's probably something we don't know. So obviously the parallels of imperial interest are there, but we've had the curtain pulled back a little bit on what happened in Latin America, the Senate investigation, the leaks, so we can see what it's really about, who are the real actors, and it was Pepsi, Ford, Chevron, ITT, and so on. So I, I think there were some Assange leaks either over Iraq and Afghanistan. I forget now what they said. But for the most part, we got to speculate about who did have the private meetings with Bush, who has his phone number, uh, probably defense contractors to start with, but who knows what else. And what what this has taught me is that everything makes sense once you have the receipts, the text, the private meetings, and so on. So there's probably a reason 
why it happened like it did. And there's probably a reason that Biden's pulling out now. And unless he, the other possibility is he's just too senile to forget the secret deals that he's supposed to be upholding. Yeah, it's really it's really hard for me to believe that there's no material motivation behind it with the with Pills video and the access that some of those companies had to the executive wing versus there were pipelines in Afghanistan owned by companies. I'm pretty sure Chevron bought out the company that was based in California that owned a pipeline in Afghanistan. It's hard for me to believe that there, the executive branch was not also fielding you know, calls from these sorts of people who were saying, yeah, Afghanistan's a good idea. Let's go in there because we can, we can, we can, uh, we can uh, build on some interests yeah. there. I'm sure that I'm sure there was some of that motivation. I think it's a combination of different motivations, but I think, I think, I think Matt, Matt was right earlier that there, there is a, there's a whole confluence of ideological factors too. And I think also politically, I mean, in, in America, his for historically wars are popular. They help the president usually uh, look good. So there's like a political motivation as well. Like, I mean, I mean, think about think about Margaret Thatcher when she invaded the Falkland Islands, like her fucking approval ratings were in the toilet. And then all of a sudden the Falklands War came out and it was a gift. All of a sudden she became like the Iron Lady, the most popular prime minister at the time. So One thing that I did look up that I think I'm going to look up anytime there's any sort of uh, interventionist project was foreign direct investment. In 2000, foreign direct investment in Afghanistan was like zero. The second the war happened, it shot up to like unprecedented levels in Afghanistan forever. And then every year you can see it kind of ticks down as they realize this is going to be a harder project that they thought until last year when it was basically down to zero again. And then, yeah. and then lithium magically crept into the modern debate despite them not having any mining infrastructure. So that's, that's also an interesting thing, but but that's uh, we'll we'll see what happens to Biden, right? This is the greatest pullout in history, so we'll see where he decides to blow his load. Yeah, hopefully, exactly. hopefully he doesn't impregnate her. <laughs> I did have a thought. Maybe he did this, hoping it would end in disaster, so that he wouldn't have to make good on his promise to pull out of Iraq. You think he's? You think mm. his people are smart mm. enough for that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I doubt it. By the way, in other news, Ryerson University just announced that they're going to change their name after after reading a report with a few recommendations. Yeah, with the recommendations. So. Hey, oh, well, that's fun. I, there's a couple. I'm pretty sure there's a couple like high schools and shit in Toronto also named after Ryerson. But I guess that's uh, that's stage two. Is, is Ryerson a problematic person? Well, but yeah, he was, he was helped. He like influenced the residential schools, but also like all, was also a big influencer on like the universal schooling in Canada. So he was a complicated figure, but definitely helped the residential schools. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We hope we did a, a bit of a theory job. It's kind of easy looking back in hindsight and picking up what an idiot this guy was, but he seems like kind of an idiot even by the standards of the time. Yeah, and we all agreed, even the libs who also just want to say, obviously that, you know, Ignatieff's not really a lib. Uh, he's just like a, a neo-lib. We lost lib. our true <laughs> lib in Jack Layton. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya.